Hi everyone and welcome to Hedge Fund Tips. This is our 10th episode of the video cast and it's our first episode of the podcast uh, from hedgefundtips.com. I'm Tom Hayes and today we're going to start with a um, couple articles that I was featured in, asked to give a quote on. First from CNBC earlier in the week on Roku. Uh, this article is by Megan Graham. Thanks for including me in the article. And just want to go through a couple points, uh, notes that I gave her on Roku that went into this article. You can Google it. Roku is the best performing tech stock of 2019, but skeptics see a litany of risk. And basically what I went through with Megan was that the stock is up around 10x, 10 times from its IPO price in 2017. Uh, the revenues are up about 1.35x, so 135%. Uh, 135% and there are no earnings to be heard of at present. So this is simply one of those cases where the stock might be getting ahead of itself and its, its underlying business and it might be uh, a place to, to lock in some profits if you own it or, or um, if you've owned it for a while. And no high conviction, short the stock or anything like that, but Basically, giving, giving it credit, obviously they have 32 million active accounts, but the risk of new entrants is uh, aiming to encroach on their newfound success. Comcast, for example, just gave its internet-only customers, i.e. the bundle cord cutters, a free complimentary st streaming device. And it's not clear you know, what Apple and Facebook and Disney have in store to also start to uh, uh, chew at this moat that Roku has developed as a first mover. So that was the basis of it. And then the second thing that I went into was, was whether or not we're in an environment where um, companies with, without clear paths to profitability will start to get bid again. They did the last week of December. It's unclear whether that, that's going to start to reverse because the last couple of months of 2019, uh, particularly after the WeWorks debacle, the, all of these stocks uh, that uh, had no profits were really taken out to the woodshed. So there are a number of factors, but, but basically the, the position and the quote, which you can read, is, is uh, might be getting a little ahead of itself, might be worth taking some profits if you're in it and some of the competitive threats moving forward. The second article I was fortunate to be included in this week was today in Fox Business with Daniela Genovese. Thank you for including me. And this one was about Tesla. And for those of you who've been following us uh, for some time, you know the last couple of months, two and a half months, I've been talking energy. So this is not an idealistic position about, you know, I love Tesla, I love Elon Musk. Basically, it was just an acknowledgement that uh, you know, for, for some time, number one, he delivered, okay? So he delivered a record 112,000 cars for two, uh, Q4 2019, up from 97 the previous quarter, uh, up 50% year-on-year, uh, 2018 to 2019 deliveries. And, um, and I, I made the case that this may be the beginning for the Thomas Edison of our day. And it's not totally related to stock price because the stock has now moved 150% in the last six months. So um, the thing that has constantly perplexed me is why you know, many people want to bet against this guy who, in my view, is, is the Thomas Edison of today. 
Um, he's innovative. He's forward thinking. He has a track record of success. And I understand the historic financials. I understand the leverage. I understand uh, uh, what was really perceived and close to being material financial risk in, in past years. But of all of the people and the ideas that you could bet against with, you know, um, serious, serious uh, conviction, you know, there, there's got to be better places to, to want to short. I mean, I think if if Elon Musk wins, uh, I think a lot, you know, I think everyone wins because he brings an innovation and new ideas to many different aspects of society, et cetera. Now, this is coming from a guy who has a very aggressive position in oil and gas. So again, this is not idealistic. It's a recognition of a guy who is an innovator, who's successful, I, I believe is the, the uh, uh, Thomas Edison of our day. But it wasn't a endorsement, go long here after 150% move up. It's saying that the best for the business with the new uh, Shanghai facility, which will have a capacity run rate of about 3,000 cars per week, um, they've got a real high ramp. And in, in major cities in China, they've really got a smog problem like California had in the 70s. So electrics are going to be part of the mix. And we covered last week, I think, an article by uh, Peter Lynch, one of the greatest stock pickers of all time, saying, yeah, you know, China will probably do 5 million electric vehicles, but they're also going to do probably 17 million uh, combustible engines. You know, the demand is just growing and, and that's going to be the case. We're going to cover a very important article at the end of this podcast video cast about uh, population growth and GDP growth from now to 2050 and the mix and the increased demand of energy that will be required o over that period. But basically, uh, it's an acknowledgement of the new demand in China. It's an acknowledgement of beating his numbers and being focused. It's an acknowledgement of his innovation and uh, it, what it's not is saying is with the stock up 150% buy here, uh, that, that is not the case. But, but uh, I, I did in my note to Daniela, which didn't get covered in the article, um, uh, I said to, the, said to her, perhaps the Saudis should have secured the funding at 420 last year as they would have already been in the quote unquote green. So um, I'll keep my day job, won't make it as a comedian, but uh, just thought, you know, hats off, everyone bet against this guy and, and uh, he won. What it does in the next few months, I have no idea, but I think in the long term, this guy is a front runner, he's an innovator, and, uh, and I wouldn't, wouldn't bet against him. All right, on to our main article of the week, the, uh, which you can find at hedgefundtips.com if you're on the podcast. It's called The Earth, Wind, and Fire, Shining Star stock market and sentiment results. So each week I try to have a theme for what's currently happening in the market regarding positioning, sentiment, etc. And we came into this article was written yesterday on Thursday with just extreme excitement, euphoria, ab ebullience. And so the song Shining Star from Earth, Wind and Fire in 1975 can listen to a little bit here just to get us going here. Searching for family yeah. vacations? Find it. Well, anyway, that, uh, you guys know the song. The key here was whether this is a shining star market and it's going to continue to shine, or if it's a shooting star market, which uh, many shining stars are mistaken for shooting stars, which 
is actually rapidly moving meteors that burn up upon entering the Earth's atmosphere. So is it going to fizzle out? And the case I made to start off the article is in coming weeks, as companies start to report and give forward earnings guidance, we're really going to get a better sense if this is going to continue to be a shining star market or if it was just a shooting star. Um, my sense is, and, and we'll make the case with earnings later in this um, weekly review, is that the earnings are currently there for this to continue for some time. That doesn't preclude short-term volatility, but uh, so far things are there and even things are ticking up in, in, in Europe. So what's going to matter and what's going to distinguish between shining, the persistence of, of uh, growth or shooting is going to be forward guidance. And with the phase one deal behind us, nearly, which will nearly double exports to China off the high watermark of the 2017 baseline, we could potentially see a situation where C-suites ramp up investment in CapEx with that increased visibility and slowly begin to take up forward guidance. And this is such a foreign concept because we're coming off of three quarters, three consecutive quarters of negative earnings growth, the first earnings recession we've had since 2016. And CEO and CFO pessimism close to 2009 great financial crisis levels, uh, which were at, right at the beginning of the bull market, not at the end of the bull market. And the deal now having expectations of a 50 basis point bump to GDP as a result of the deal. So we're going to find out if CEOs and CFOs are starting to thaw that pessimism that we saw just four weeks ago. And when I broached this idea that perhaps uh, after a China deal was announced, estimates could even start to come up. I sounded like a Martian. And now we're going to get to see if that possibility is, is real. So wh why is that important? Well, it's a formula, right? So with, with forward guidance uh, at 178.24, okay, so now it's come down to 177. We're going to cover this uh, in just a minute. It's down, uh, yeah, one, it's 177.77 as of today, January 3rd, down from 178.24. So it came in 26 basis points, but the earnings growth rate is still 9.6%. Don't want to get ahead of ourselves there. So um, the forward multiple we're trading at is, is now up to 18.3 times forward earnings as of today. And this is above the five-year average of 16.6 times, but below what would be an end-of-cycle multiple, which could rise to closer to 19 or 21 times or more. So it's not clear that this is end-of-cycle, as I made the case for the possibility of both a 1998 scenario and the possibility of a 1995 scenario last week, particularly emphasizing what Chair Powell said in the last Fed meeting, uh, that he was, number one, going to hold off until 2021, which is the mistake they made in 98. In 98, they cut three times for the LTCM crisis, and then seven months later, they reversed those cuts. He said, I'm not going to make the 1998 mistake and cause the 2000 peak. Uh, he said that he's going to let it run hot like they did in 1995, which extended the cycle for five years. He also said that, you know, there's huge amounts that they can go in terms of increasing the labor force participation rate and bringing those marginal workers back to work. You can see that uh, on our site. Just click under category sentiment. You can see every week's article uh, starting with this one and, and review that information. So 
So it's not clear it's end of the cycle, but we could get that multiple expansion. We're not gonna get that multiple expansion if um, in the absence of decent guidance coming out of earnings season in the coming weeks and months. So if earnings tick up a bit, we could keep our reasonable multiple uh, given the low discount rate. So, you know, 18 times is not unreasonable. We've just lowered the discount rate by 75 bips in the last few months. Or if earnings stays flat and we get a multiple expansion up to 20 times, if it's end of cycle, hypothetically, that could get us to 35.64 on the S&P in 2020. But you're not going to get that unless we get decent guidance. So that's what we have to be watching in the next few weeks and to a couple months here uh, during earnings season. And uh, if we stay in the ballpark or potentially increase to this newfound visibility from the trade relations, uh, that could even be conservative. So now we, we talked about sectors and I laid out a chart in the article of the S&P sectors, consumer discretionary staples, energy, financials, healthcare, industrials, information technology, materials, communication services, utilities, and real estate. And the earnings uh, per share for estimated 2020, 2019, and then all the years back to 2013. So you can see how prices responded to earnings of uh, operating earnings of each of these sectors over the years and i found two things really stick stuck out for me number one was howard silverblatt again this data is from s p global they do a great job over there so uh credit there um what stands out to me is that he has negative earnings growth for operating earnings growth for financials utilities and real estate in 2020 I'm skeptical on financials. We'll, we'll see how that plays out. The remaining sectors are positive, though. So the other thing that I pointed out was the notable divergences in several sectors. So, for instance, since 2016, the operating earnings of the S&P 500 are up 65% through 2020 estimates. However, the price of the S&P 500 over that period is only up 42.6% from the price peak in 16 to the most recent price peak, um, you know, uh, I think in the last week. The second thing that, so prices underperformed earnings power. Secondly, uh, operating earnings for the energy sector, which we've been talking about for two and a half months, which by the way, the EMP sector is up 21%, give or uh, just about in the last uh, four weeks, so it's just had a monster move. May may take a little rest and before it moves again, uh, but the uh, then again may not. We're going to talk about the rig count and some other things at the end of this uh, weekly review. So the operating earnings for the energy sector will nearly double in 2020 relative to 2017. And yet the price is of the sector is trading down 11% off the peak for XLE, XLE is the sector ETF. I just use that for simplicity going into 2017. So, so basically the operating earnings are gonna double, but the price is down 11%. So that those type of divergencies tend to get resolved upwards. We uh, identified one of those in biotech in September and it made our year along with energy at the end of the year. That was nice whipped cream, but uh, this a similar setup is happening here in energy. 21% has already moved. But uh, there's a lot, there could, be, there could be more to go is, is our view. Again, this is all opinion, not advice. 
go to hedgefundtips.com, click on terms, and all the disclaimers are there. Uh, third is um, healthcare has had a nice, quite a nice move. Uh, if you look at the chart, it's pretty spectacular. But when you look at operating earnings for the healthcare sector, they've grown 106% since 2014. Yet the peak price of the XLV, which is the ETF for the sector, has only appreciated by 57.9%. So that's another divergence where price, uh, where earnings have outpaced price. And you wouldn't think that because the consensus is that everything is overpriced. So I'm less interested in what the general market indices do at this stage. Okay, There are pockets of opportunity where earnings growth has dramatically outpaced price growth. And in those sectors and subsectors is where you're going to find us prospecting for golden opportunities. So um, further in this article, I go into the exploration and production subsector of energy, which is kind of ironic for a guy who got quoted about Tesla today. But um, it doesn't have to be either or. We're going to need all the energy we can handle for an $86 trillion GDP, real GDP, in 2050 and uh, another two and a half billion people. So uh, everyone can win. Now, um, if you're interested in the energy thesis, click on this article. If you're on the podcast, you can search. We have a search bar on our website at hedgefundtips.com. Just search uh, J. Paul Getty, J. Paul Getty, energy stock market and sentiment results. Or you can just click on sentiment under categories and all these articles come up. What's important about this article is when you click on it, you're going to see three other articles that we've been writing over the last two and a half months that really lay out the thesis for why we got involved in mid-October and added all the way through early December. Next, um, as far as the general indices, Chair Powell, we talked about, he's doing his part with rates. He's also injected $406 billion of liquidity since August of this year. So foots on the pedal. And by the way, we had $785 billion of quantitative tightening. With this $406 billion, we've now unwound well more than half of that in just a few months. So on this pace, by the end of winter, we'll have unwound that unnecessary tightening that took place uh, for, for two straight years. Um, so that, that is very constructive. And then the question again goes back to how will CEOs and CFOs guide moving forward? Um, and if you're interested in seeing the data on the CEO and CFO sentiment, click on the last week's sentiment article, Fly Me to the Moon, Stock Market and Sentiment Results. We covered the shorter term sentiment at the end of this article. Uh, it came in a bit. People were less bullish this week than last week. So 37.22% bullish versus 41%. And bearishness rose just a hair, barely. What's notable is that neutrality, what I call confusion, they, they were neither bullish or bearish, nor bearish, uh, jumped about 10% from 36 to 40 and change. The last time neutrality got this high, i.e. confusion, was at the market bottom off a pullback in, on December 5th. And the time before that was another market bottom at 39% on October 3rd. So you can take a look at the S&P chart against this article. Uh, maybe there's something to be said there, maybe not, but it, a nice coincidence nonetheless. Uh, three times I start to pay attention. Fear and Greed Index, this is overall sentiment and positioning, a compilation of I think seven different indicators. You can watch this video to find out more about it. It's the CNN Fear and Greed Index. 
Uh, this was at 93. I think it's even higher as of last night, probably lower tonight with the um, uh, Iran scare. But um, nonetheless, it's at an extreme level. It's generally not the level you want to be adding a lot of new risk at all. You want to be adding at extreme fear, you know, zero to 20. But um, if you are adding, you're adding in those sectors and stocks that haven't yet participated in this huge move, which is now up about 14% off the October, September, October lows, the S&P 500. So, um, so adding selectively in what's lagged, I wouldn't be adding at those things that have run huge, like the Teslas, like, the, you know, obviously the Roku's like the, uh, uh, things that are up a lot because if we do get a pullback of a few percent those are going to go down a lot more the high beta stocks uh, outperform on the upside and they outperform on the downside active investment managers a key point we laid out here was that their equity exposure did jump up to 100 percent it's down a little bit since yesterday but um when you come out of such a deep deep trough like you did in 2016 the last earnings recession and 2018 uh, this level of positioning can stay pinned for some time. So even though we're at elevated levels, look what happened from 16 to 17 when we had a 37% uh, rally after three quarters of negative earnings growth from here to here, the S&P rallied 37, Q4 of 16 to Q1 of 18 for those of you listening on the podcast. S&P rallied 37.8%. These levels stayed pinned, and this is uh, certainly a distinct possibility here. Um, over the intermediate term, short term, you know, you can get pullbacks, you can get consolidations. It, it is what it is. So the theme was we remain bullish for 2020. Intermediate term, short term, you could get some volatility. Obviously, we're seeing a little bit. But um, so we, we did trim... In, re in previous notes, we talked about trimming the names that had run and reallocating to those sectors and stocks that were just starting to participate. So that's that. Again, if you want to review this note and past notes on the hedgefundtips.com site, click on sentiment right here, and they're all there. Next thing we want to cover is earnings. So what's changed this week's 2020 earnings estimates at U.S. down modestly, Europe up. So as I said earlier, the S&P 500 earnings came in 26 basis points from 178.24 to 177.77. It's a drop of 26 basis points, uh, but our growth rate stayed at 9.6% because 2019 final results came down a little bit. Q4 2019 estimates have dropped 10 bips from negative 1.5 last week to negative 1.4 this week which implies a positive earnings quarter because the average recovery is 3.6% a quarter, implies a 2.1% positive year-on-year -year earnings growth, which will be the first positive quarter um, after having three negative quarters of year-on-year -year earnings growth. The last time we had three negative quarters was 2016. And from Q4 2016 to Q1 2018, the S&P rallied 37.8%. We have already rallied 14% off the October lows, but provided we get reasonable guidance in the coming weeks and months of earnings season, we could have further room to run in 2020, as evidenced by the average return after a 210 inversion over 18 months, and certainly as evidenced by what happened in uh, 2016 and we'll see what happens with earnings and data that's going to be the name of the game so um guidance so far is good so uh 67 percent 
took guidance down. So 72 out of 107 companies took down guidance for Q4, which is less than the five-year average of 70%. So it's in the ballpark, but a little bit better. That, that's good. The consensus 12-month target price for the S&P 500, though, this is really interesting, is only 3441.44, which is only 5.6% above yesterday's closing price. Now, that's interesting to me. They've got a target price that's only up 5.6%, but they've got earnings growth at 9.6%, which implies multiple contraction. That's unnatural to have multiple contraction when you have the discount rate being lowered, when rates are going down. Um, the amount that you're willing to pay for future cash flows goes up, net present value. So um, either their bet is that earnings are gonna come down a lot or they're just being entirely too conservative. And as I said, for the last four weeks, what if earnings now go modestly up or certainly stay the same and buck the trend of earnings coming down that we've experienced for the last four quarters? So I think this might be conservative, um, but either way, it's it's a gain. I think you know if if you have decent guidance, uh, you could you could see a, a target that's that's a bit higher. But let's see how the data comes in. Nothing's changed in terms of the worst three sectors of 2019 are still expected to have the highest three earnings growth rates of 2020, led by energy at 21.5% earnings growth, industrials at 14.7%, and materials at 13.3% off of obviously easier comps. And this was the surprise of the week. Euro stock 600 earnings actually were revised up post-China deal. Interesting. And not just a small amount, a relatively big amount. For the first three quarters, the cumulative collective EPS earnings growth is 110 basis points higher than it was two weeks ago. Uh, and Q4 remain, Q4 19 remained the same. But to go up a full 110 bips for the first three quarters and Q4 of next year remain the same uh, is just unexpected good news. So keep that in the back of your head. And that's earnings. Moving on quickly to an article we posted earlier in the week, Dogs of the Dow. Many of you know this strategy. Barron's did an article. Um, but what was interesting is you guys looking for alpha. Uh, it's modest alpha. But in the last 10 years, the Dogs of the Dow earned almost 15% a year on average, which was better than 13.4% per year for the Dow and 13.5% for the S&P 500 over the same period. So basically, it just says you buy the 10 highest yielding stocks at the end of the year. Basically, the worst become first. And this year's 10 that they're talking about are obviously materials and energy that we just talked about, industrials, materials, and energy. So uh, Dow, DOW, Exxon, XOM, IBM, Chevron, CVX, uh, Pfizer, PFE, 3M, Triple M. Walgreens, WBA, Cisco, CSCO, Coca-Cola, KO, and Caterpillar, CAT. So no one can tell you what's going to happen, uh, if it's going to continue to work. It didn't work three out of the 10 years, but over the long term, it has worked. Uh, it's just an easy thing to keep in mind. You can check out that article uh, on our site. Just go into the search bar or go to barons.com. Dogs of the Dow stock picking strategy was a winner for the decade and put that in the search bar. Next, moving on, last few things. We cover sector earnings. Uh, this one was a bit, 
disappointing. Transports um, earnings, we covered the 2020 estimates actually were revised down by 4.19% in the last 60 days. Uh, not an enormous weighting, but something we want to keep our eye on, see if these start to come up and do a little bit better moving forward, but uh, just wanted to get that information out. Seven, I met a, this interesting guy on LinkedIn named uh, Jude Clemente, and nice guy. He's like an oil expert. He's been covering oil, gas, power, LNG markets. I think he worked for Ingersoll Rand for, for some time, and he's a contributor at Forbes. And he did this whole article on how the Paris Climate Accord uh, is deemed a failure because the developing nations, and it's not a failure because it's like, you know, oil people, uh, you know, we're better. It's a failure because his article is, his, his argument is actually a humanitarian argument that six in every seven humans today live in developing nations and over 3 billion humans still use biomass for home heating and cooking. And that creates indoor pollution that kills over 4 million people a year. Uh, so he's basically saying that, um, you know, places like India, which has almost 15 million homes without access to electricity, 70% of its population still depend on biomass. Um, and he talks about you know, 70% of their energy coming from coal. What it inevitably means is that the world will be using more energy, as he puts it, much more energy in the decades ahead. And that's going to have to be as many renewables as humanly possible. And it's going to be a lot of fossil fuel if we want to bring people up out of poverty. Uh, if we want, you know, so it's going to be a balance. I think over time, we're going to use a huge amount of renewables, but the aggregate amount of fossil fuels is still going to increase because we're going to add you know, two and a half billion people, which is basically 125 New York cities worth of population. We're going to get up to 10.3 billion people by 2050. And G real GDP, global GDP is going to double to 85 trillion over that period. And that's, that's the push and pull. We need the renewables, but we're also going to need the fossil fuels. And there are many people, in, certainly in like the last six months, there's been this thing like we can't use fossil fuels. Well, then there's going to be a ton of poverty if we don't continue to use fossil fuels. So there'll be creative ways with carbon capture and all different types of things. And he goes on to discuss this uh, and fertility rates in Africa because they need children in those nations to do the routine chores. And one of those chores is collecting biomass for fuel so they can stay warm. It's, it's really interesting. So um, he also talks about 15,000 children under the age of five die from preventable causes, from abject poverty, from not having proper and modern energy. Um, so uh, there's going to be continued demand from both sides of the spectrum, renewables and, um, and fossil fuels. And I've never heard it phrased in such a constructive way. It's, it's, it's not either your renewable or your fossil fuel. It's like, do we want to bring all these people out of poverty and have them contribute and increase their standard of living? And if so, we're going to have to do all of it and we're going to have to be responsible about it. But the net demand is going to increase on both sides of the spectrum, maybe proportionately more for renewables. But uh, in sheer numbers, the, the, the fossils are going to have to, to play a role for the time being. So 
Jude Clemente over at Forbes for energy. Poor people deserve to be rich as you can Google that. And it is also posted on our site. Either get it at Forbes or get it at hedgefundtips.com. And lastly, uh, the rig count for the week with our kind of energy theme the last couple of months. So the rig count is down 279 rigs from this time last year to 796 rigs. And what's more interesting was a stat that I read. So the, the rig count came down seven this week, 279 from 12 months ago, but 58% from the peak in October, 2014. So we had 600, 1,609 rigs in October, 2014. And we're down 58% from that number to 796, I guess is, uh, that sounds about right. That, that's the stat that they had in the article. 796 down from 1,609, spectacular. You know, the old phrase in the commodity business is high prices cure high prices. And I think people are underestimating the amount of supply that's coming offline and the level of demand that's there. So, um, you know, we've talked about exploration and production for, you know, 10 weeks now. Uh, go review the articles if you have an interest. Uh, that's it for this week. If you're on the, uh, the video cast, you can uh, on YouTube, click below and get our free newsletter. Uh, if you're on the podcast, you can go to hedgefundtips.com. Thanks for tuning in this week. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, have a great one and happy new year to everybody.